May 24th, 2010, VGN Radio presents Kevin's Old Blast Radio with your host, Kevin Baird. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you back. Or if this is your first time listening, welcome. Uh, this show is basically a outlet for um, me, Kevin, to um, talk about uh, various topics of um, technology, war, politics, sometimes recipes. And uh, things that I follow in general. Um, I am the host of some other podcasts, uh, including Video Game News Radio, uh, Midwest Wasteland, and Cleveland Sports Radio. Um, this show is basically a solo show where the other shows I have co-hosts, and we all do the shows together. So this is actually just sort of a, an outgrowth of those shows. Um, so you know, if you're a first-time listener and you um, you know you find the show interesting and fun, I definitely uh, invite you to uh, check out the other shows that we do. You can find out more information about all of them by going to videogamenews.com, and the first post on the front page. If you click on that, it will show you how to get all of the shows that we do, as well as contact information and other descriptive information about the shows. Uh, you can also write to me. Uh, it is uh, K Baird, that's K B A I R D, at VGN.us. And I'll read your email on the air and answer any questions you have, etc. Or if you just want to comment on something or correct an inaccuracy that I might um, say, which is fairly normal for me, uh, you know, feel free to um, write into the show and chime in and I'll, uh, you know, read your correction on the air. So uh, this week, the topics are. A war with North Korea, insurance GPS, everything you didn't want to know about pools, but I'm going to tell you anyway, localization, immigration reform, the impossible programming race, and uh, I was going to do some email, but actually I don't have an email this week. So I know some of, uh, we've been doing a lot of World War II talk lately, and I know I did say that I'm going to be having a gentleman from Australia come on the show, and uh, we did try to work that out um, a couple weeks back, but uh, there was a miscommunication because... Uh, my iPhone's email um, failed for like two weeks, and um, I actually was waiting around for him to send me an email, and I didn't know that uh, my kbaird at vgn.us email was broken. And um, now I think the guy in Australia is pissed off at me because he's not returning my emails, which, um, you know, I think I, I think that's just the way Australian culture is. Like, if you go up to some guy and you're like, um, hey, man, I, I lost your email. I think by rights they just punch you in the face and then take something of yours and step on it. So, you know, since he can't do that, I think he's just going to be pissed and not talk to me. So I'm going to give him a little bit uh, to see if maybe he, um, you know, finds some time to get in touch with me and cools off, and uh, we'll get him back on the show. And um, if not, then I'll just go ahead and go forward with the Australian conversation on the next show. I also have a guest uh, coming on again that I talked about um, whose grandfather was uh, in the... Um, Japanese army during uh, World War II and uh, we're still working out a time that's best for him to get on the show and uh, talk about that as well as Japanese in general because he's Japanese so it'll be really interesting uh, to talk to him about all of that and um, I do have a listener from the UK who wants to be on the show, I want to get him on I do want to get the guy from the post office on that wrote in, but I forgot who you are so why don't you write me again if you're listening to the show and um, a, few, a few others of you have uh, written that you've uh, I want to get on the show. I, I want to have you all on the show. Uh, if I don't get in contact with you after a while, you know, um, feel free to write me again, you know, that you want to get on the show, and um, we'll work it out. It's just that usually once I get, like, um, a little backlog of guests that I'm trying to, you know, fit on the show, and everybody has all these different schedules and stuff, that if, you know, if you're, like, three or four weeks out from being on the show, then, you know, I just... I suck at getting back to you. I just got so much going on. But um, I definitely, you know, that, don't ever take that as me being like, you know, oh, I don't, want, I don't want anything to do with that guy. Yeah, you know, there's nothing to do with that. Um, it's just that you know I'm I'm all over the place typically, and I just can't keep track of everything. And I get a ridiculous amount of email. So if your email doesn't get answered, um, it eventually just moves off the page, and then I just I don't know. I just forget about it. So I, I apologize. It just happens. So okay. So this week um, I want to take a little break from the World War II and talk a little bit about North Korea. Uh, recently, North Korea. Um, supposedly was found uh, guilty of um, torpedoing and sinking a um, uh, South Korean, um, I think it was a cruiser is what they called it. It, it kind of looked more like a frigate to me, but um, I think it was a cruiser. And um, 
It uh, was investigated. I mean, for the most part, the South Koreans pretty much knew from the get-go that it was probably the North Koreans that hit this thing. Um, but they kept level heads about it. They did a full investigation, and uh, they had basically found parts from the torpedo, and uh, they matched them to the um, arms catalog that the North Koreans give out to their allies when they want to sell them arms, and had basically proven without a shadow of a doubt that... Um, you know, the torpedo was uh, North Korean. Uh, whether the North Koreans actually fired that torpedo is another, you know, is another story. But uh, most likely, that's probably what happened. I don't see why the South Koreans would want to um, escalate tensions uh, further on the peninsula. And um, now the United States is planning on having joint uh, naval exercises, military exercises, with the, um, uh, the South Koreans. And the South Koreans are planning on building up their um, readiness and their military. And uh, they are pursuing an aggressive posture against the North. And I've actually spent an abnormal amount of time uh, doing a lot of reading about um, both the Korean War and uh, the North Koreans in general. Um, basically, if there's a piece of news out there about North Korea, I've probably read it at some point. And um, I actually understand um, the... Uh, I, I may be saying this wrong, but I understand the, the North Korean... Um, uh, Jush, which is their, or, or Jushe, I don't know how they say it, um, which is spelled J-U-C-H-E, um, which is their, um, their ideology, and uh, it was written by um, Kim Il-sung, which was the uh, father of uh, Kim Jong-il, who is the current leader of North Korea, and uh, it is basically their handbook to the way their um, form of uh, communism uh, works. And I thought that, uh, you know, I would talk a little bit about North Korea in the sense of who they are and their readiness to actually um, fight a war with us and, and what that would entail. Not just with us, but with South Korea and probably Japan and, um, you know, maybe United Nations allies. Um, I don't think, though, that I want to go into the whole bit with the... Um, the, the war, the Korean War, because as it would just take too long um, for the show. I mean, something we could talk about in the future. But um, essentially, there was a um, divide um, between uh, two um, ideologies in the Koreas once Japan was defeated after World War II. Um, Japan had basically, you know, in, uh, enslaved the uh, Korean people for... Um, a very long time, and once they were free, um, there was this desire to, um, you know, form a new government. And uh, the northern part um, was influenced by the Chinese and the Russian communists, and the southern part was um, influenced more by the United Nations, um, so more democrat, uh, d democracy leaning. And uh, the um, the war went back and forth. You know, it happened very quickly um, right after the end of World War II. It happened in the 50s. Uh, MacArthur was still involved in this, and um, he uh, had driven the North Koreans up to uh, basically the borders of China. Then China got involved in the war and uh, pushed them back down. And the, the UN basically brokered a peace, and uh, they basically split the country in half at the 39th parallel of, uh, of the globe, if you look at a globe, the 39th parallel is what they call the demilitarized zone today, and it's called DMZ. And this was a, this was a, um, this was a ceasefire. It was not a peace treaty, it was not an end of the war, it was a, essentially a ceasefire. And um, today we have uh, a 60-year ceasefire going on. The war has never officially ended, and um, the North are on one side of uh, the DMZ and South are on the other, and it is the most heavily um, militarized border um, in the entire world. Uh, basically, the North Koreans have um, uh, about a million men uh, uh, or more um, in their military, basically stationed on that border, and the South Koreans have somewhere around. I think the last time I read it was in the vicinity of about 600,000 men uh, on that border. And the United States has, yeah, it varies, but I, it depends on if we're doing exercises or not. But I th I've, I've heard numbers around 50,000 to maybe 35,000 
um, as well. And we're there as advisors, but you know, we're there out of uh, friendship and everything else that we have going on there. And um, when we have strategic interests, of course, in uh, South Korea, like when the North is getting uh, ornery, we also send aircraft carrier battle groups over there, which have an extensive amount of firepower, and we fly bombers and land them in um, South Korea, and it's all done in sort of an intimidating manner. Now, um, the South Korea uh, is your standard um, democratic country as far as Asian um, democratic countries go. Uh, it has a um, big military for, for what it is. Um, and, you know, it's it's industrialized. And maybe I should have Karate Dog on sometime talking to us about South Korea or something that's been to South Korea to tell us a little bit more about the society that's going on inside um, South Korea. But um, it, it's, it's very modern, where North Korea, of course, is not. Um, North Korea got most of its money, uh, even though people say, well, the Chinese have all this influence over the North Koreans. They, they do. But um, North Korea actually got most of its money from the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union was um, still around. There's a tiny border with the Soviet Union along its um, northeastern uh, corner of the country. Um, it, uh, it, it's where the Soviet Union can get in and out of North Korea. And um, the North basically um, got all of its funding uh, to support its um, government from uh, the Soviet Union. And one of the reasons that the Soviet Union uh, backed this, as well as the Chinese backed this today, is because the Koreans provide, the North Koreans provide a buffer to the West. Um, if South Korea, for instance, were to take over North Korea, um, then you have a democratic country on the border of um, China, and at the time it would have been Soviet Union. Uh, you know, today they're, well, you know, Russia, I, I don't know if they're a dem democracy anymore or not. They, they pretend to be one anyway. But, um, uh, you know, a, a real democracy there with their, their freedoms and their, um, their, their culture at the time, especially, you know, when, when uh, all of these countries were very um, communist in nature, uh, and, and in government and policy, and not just by saying um, we're communist, was a, was a problem. So they wanted to really build up the North and, and, and create that buffer there. Um, if you don't know what communism is, I thought I'd stop for a second, because you hear this all the time, and a lot of people don't necessarily understand. I mean, if you're a young dude, um, you may not know, or you, you, may, not, you may have offhandedly heard about it. And um, basically... Um, like today you hear, for instance, that China is, is a communist country. China's not a communist country. It was a communist country. And it, it has essentially a communist government. And communism is essentially that the government controls your whole economy. It says, you're, this is your farm. This is what you're going to farm. You're going to take what you farm. You're going to sell it. We're going to get the money. And then we're going to give you a paycheck. And this is your, for instance, your um, uh, garage where you can work on cars. You're gonna have, you're gonna be a mechanic. You're gonna work on the cars. You're gonna get paid. You're not gonna get paid to work on these cars. We're gonna get paid. You're just gonna work on the cars, and we're gonna give you a check. And that's what communism is. Now China's not communist because China has a free market society at this point. They allow businesses to open. Now China controls some of that. They can go in and say, hey, we're shutting you down, all this kind of stuff, if they want to. But generally, in general, it's mostly a corrupt system, and um, anybody can open anything over there. You know, I mean, you look at the Google situation, of course, you know, there was censorship and this sort of thing. But for the most part, it's not a, it's not a true communist system anymore, because the government isn't in control of every aspect of what everyone is doing over there. Basically, it's just a communist country in the government system. The government is basically a rotating set of dictators, basically, because you can't really vote for anyone else. And um, they, event, you know, they just want to try and stay in power in China. But back in the day, when uh, Mao was in charge of China, it was a true communist country, and it was trying to um, control everything, just like the Soviet Union was a communist country, and it did control everything. 
And um, so there was a fear that democracy, if it got too close to the borders, would, with its free market society, which is more to do with the, the, the air of capitalism and free markets, than it does with actually being able to say, to, to go vote. Because, you know, if you look at the United States, for instance, I mean, we say we're, you know, we're a democracy and we're a free country and everything, and, and in some ways we are, but in some ways we aren't. Because, I mean, we essentially, when it comes time to vote, we get to vote for two people, and they're both basically the same party with some slight differences. Um, and that's because our system is corrupt and, uh, you know, not in our best interest. It's mostly in the best interest of the people that are in government because they want to try and um, stay in power as long as possible, so they make it very difficult for anybody to come in and challenge an incumbent. And that's why the news, when, you know, somebody like Rand Paul and all that sort of stuff um, comes out and wins an election and defeats an incumbent, that people uh, find that so shocking because it's, it is extremely rare. And that's a problem of our government more than anything else. It's, it's a failure to really um, embrace change and uh, allow people to have a voice, which is what the whole point of the United States is. But anyway, I'm not going to get into all that. Um, Essentially, though, the uh, North Koreans uh, stopped being funded and stopped being given military equipment around 1991 uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And uh, so basically all of their equipment that they have um, is from around 1991. They have, um, uh, you know, some, even though they're always talking about how poor they are and everything, they do have some gross domestic product, and they do have a, um, a good relationship with China, and so their military has the ability to purchase some arms. But um, these days, arms are very expensive. It's one thing to go out and buy, say, um, 1,000 AK-47s. It's another thing to go out and buy, say, a bomber, because a bomber these days might cost you, you know, $100 million or something, and North Korea doesn't have a lot of that kind of money to throw around anymore so um most likely their the government is uh fairly corrupt and and holds on to control through bribes and um uh dealing you know lots of executions and um uh, you know controlling power through intimidation and uh and making sure that the people that are allied with the the people in power are um, well-fed and well-cared for and, and bribed. And um, the, the, the lay person in that uh, society doesn't have much chance of um, breaking out of it. I and mean, one of the biggest problems with, say, starting a rebellion inside um, North Korea is the fact that they live in a freaking cold-ass mountainous climate most of the time. Uh, you know, it, I'm sure they have normal summers and things, but they have flooding and bad irrigation, and most of the people are starving. Um, if you actually go to Google Maps and you do um, a, uh, a search of North Korea and you look at a lot of the um, uh, landmarks and things like that, you'll notice that you will see um, uh, probably rice, rice fields, but crops in general, um, in just about every planted in just about every piece of green space that there is. You can see like a runway and in between like the two runways you will see that they are uh, farming in in between those spaces. You will see that every house that that, that people where, where they live in a house has a um, has a garden in their backyard and um, you, obviously you can't zoom in and see exactly what they're growing but it's not some sort of, it's not like a tree lawn it's, it's for food um, uh, their food situation there is um, very bad and, and very desperate. And these people just don't have the ability to um, rise up and uh, you know, tear down the walls of the government because they're, they're barely able to survive and subsist. So, however... The money that does come in, and the and the, and the food that does come in, tends to be rationed out um, to the to the military. So if you're in the military, you get a little bit better. Although uh, in general, the military doesn't even tend to get full rations. I mean, they you know th that's how bad it is over there. 
Um, but uh, it, still, they get fed um, better than if you're just a, um, you know, a, a domestic worker that's inside the country. So you would think that uh, they would rebel against their government and and or you know want to um, break out of this and join with the South Koreans and be free. Well, well, you know, first of all, it's not exactly that easy because they don't know what life is like outside of North Korea. And certainly, there's places where people talk and that kind of thing. But if you get caught talking about that stuff, you get sent away to a camp and you probably never get heard from ever again. Um, when we talk about the concentration camps of World War II on a previous episode, uh, these sort of camps still go on today. They go on in North Korea. Um, they do all t- types of uh, chemical weapons experiments. They do, uh, you know, torture. They do all sorts of horrible things to people there. And um, it goes on, but nobody wants to go in and, and uh, take care of it. And I'll get to the reasons why that's true in a moment. But uh, the North Koreans have a aging military, and they live in a very mountainous country. So, in general, while they may have um, some tanks and uh, uh, some mobile artillery, uh, it's probably not a lot, because um, they don't really need it. Uh, Most of their stuff was probably designed to be um, mounted guns and gun emplacements for more of a defensive operation. Um, They probably do have some initial... um, attack plans where they decide that they're going to drive some tanks forward, but they know that's probably not such a great um, strategy against the South, because um, you know, we can punch a hole through anything that they drive uh, towards the South rapidly. And so, um, instead, the North Koreans have, you know, worked for the last 60 years uh, building tunnels, building uh, fortifications, digging um, deep trenches, uh, building cement gun emplacements and uh, building weapons and ammunition and um, stockpiling all kinds of stuff to be able to withstand um, all kinds of uh, horrific combat. And because they're in uh, mountains, it makes it uh, very difficult to, say, go in there and drop a nuclear bomb. A nuclear bomb, you know, isn't really that good against a mountain. All it's going to do is basically cook the surface of the mountain, and if you're inside the mountain... Maybe you'll die of thyroid cancer in about 40 years, but basically not too much is going to happen to you unless we just pummel the things with nukes, and we're not going to do that anyway. Uh, One of the reasons why we would not want to nuke uh, North Korea is because the nuclear radiation fallout will drift in the air, and it'll either go into China, Russia, Japan, South Korea, you know, all over the Pacific. So, um, yeah, that's not going to happen. I mean, we're just not that. I mean, we're never going to nuke them. So that's that's out. So it has to be a conventional bomb. Now, for the most part, South Koreans drill for this kind of battle all the time. You know, they're 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 constantly uh, picking up intelligence. There's there's probably planes flying over. They know where all these emplacements are, and you know, a lot of people say, "Well, the South Koreans go in there and mop them right up." The reality of the situation, though, is that they got a million men over there. And they've got, you know, they've been planning to, to do battle for 60 years. Even if their tactics are terrible, there's so freaking many of them. And they're all armed to the teeth that uh, just trying to go in there and sweep them up is just not realistic at all. Um, it, it would be a hard, brutal fight for a long time. Um, they're basically unable to um, grasp anything other than the fact that uh, this war that's coming for them is inevitable. They've been planning their whole life and eating next to nothing their whole life to fight this war. Um, And uh, the, the, the people don't know. If you have a radio, for instance, if you get a radio from the state, uh, you can only get certain channels on it, and those channels are controlled by the state. Um, Same with their TV. It only picks up the state television. Um, they have loudspeakers inside the apartment complexes that broadcast um, information from the head all the time, from the from the head of North Korea all the time, just all everywhere you go. And they have um, it, it's the most controlled and um, desperate society that you can imagine. And 
they're they're very disconnected, and they've been told that the United States is the enemy, that they want them to kill them, and so that if they ran across us in in, in a sense of combat, they're not going to just raise their hands up like say the Iraqis did um, when we sent down a bunch of flyers. Uh, the North Koreans will um, probably act like the J- Japanese did in World War II and uh, fight us to the last man. That's not to say that there's not going to be some people that are going to be like, I give up. You guys got a you guys have a sandwich. Awesome. I'm gonna I want a sandwich. You know. There's always going to be guys like that, but for the most part, uh, the military is going to fight um, right down the last man, and when you live in a society like they live in, um, where they've basically been living for nothing but this to eventually happen, uh, you know, the, the odds are pretty good that they, they you know, they're, they're looking forward to it. I mean, because other, the rest of their life is just a slog through garbage, you know, um, uh, drilling every day, waiting for a battle that never comes. You'd be happy as hell when the battle finally comes. You'd be like, thank God, man, I've been... I've been doing the same exercise for the past 20 years, you know, eating rice cakes. Um, here comes the Americans, you know. I'm totally ready. And, and they, you know, they will be for the most part. Although, I mean, seriously, I mean, we would just literally, you know, bomb the living shit out of them that they just wouldn't know what the hell hit them. Um, but it would be very costly for us. Now, the North Koreans have a, a, a nuclear weapons program. I don't think it's successful, and I don't think it's deliverable. Uh, I think at the best, at, at best, if they could actually detonate a nuclear weapon, um, they might be able to put it on the back of a flatbed truck because that's probably how big it is right now, and uh, they would be able to drive it someplace close to the area and detonate it that way, um, which would be only lim- it would only have limited success, and um, you know just piss off the rest of the world and possibly allow us to use tactical nuclear bombs on them um, out of fear that the North will continue to use their own. Um, but I, I don't think that their nuclear bomb is a threat. I don't think it's a threat that's going to evolve into anything because I don't think they have the uh, financing to, um, for instance, um, build a warhead that's small enough and compact enough to place on top of a missile. They do have a homegrown missile system that's actually fairly modern and uh, works fairly well. Um, you know, they, uh, they, they were able to build staged rockets that uh, fire pretty far. They do have a lot of short-range rockets um, which, you know, both um, from land to sea and um, land to land that uh, work uh, fairly well for what they are. And so, um, unfortunately, though, they're mostly fixed and um, they're mostly liquid fuel and we would see them and be able to blow them out of the sky before, or blow them on the, on the landing, pad while they're, landing pad while they're fueling and the North Koreans wouldn't have much of a chance there. But the North Koreans do have an advantage. Where their big problem is, is that um, the capital of uh, South Korea is Seoul, and Seoul is basically right right near the border. Uh, and um, the artillery that the North has is massive, well-fortified, and well-hidden. And if war broke out, they could basically very quickly level Seoul, killing untold thousands, perhaps a million people or more, um, just by rapidly um, shelling the city, which would destroy the South Korean economy, um, would uh, kill you know so many people, and and uh, probably drop world markets and all kinds of things. So that's a big threat. Um, but really, the fear of that doesn't even bother, I think, the politicians involved because. You know, you could evacuate people before something happens, hopefully, and you can rebuild buildings. Um, the problem that uh, South Korea has is that the North would have millions of refugees, assuming that they lost the war, um, coming over to the South who have no money, who have no assets, who have no real skills outside of what the North has taught them, which is only a few, you know, a handful of their population. And um, the South would be on the hook to try and deal with these waves upon waves of refugees. It would absolutely destroy the South's economy. They would not be able to deal with it. And there's a huge fear there. That's probably the largest fear that they have as far as um, fighting a war. It isn't so much the combat and the deaths involved, which you know I'm sure everybody thinks is tragic, but it's how do you deal with the massive humanitarian crisis that you have with that many people streaming over and um, having to feed them and house them and take care of them. So that's the same with China. You know, 
China would ha also have all these refugees flowing over into their border. And uh, this is why North Korea is basically allowed to do a lot of the crap that it's allowed to do because nobody really wants that war to be fought and nobody really wants to um, clean up the mess. So, you know, what is it that people are going to do? Well, uh, you know, one strategy that they have is to um, hope that regime change will come. You know, sort of like maybe the next um, Korean leader will have a different um, mindset than um, the previous one. But what we're seeing is a, an unfortunate trend where, um, uh, you know, we had um, Kim Il-sung, who was the original leader, and now we have Kim Jong-il, who um, is arguably worse, and there's talk that um, uh, one of his sons will um, take command and uh, after um, Kim, Kim Jong-il um, dies, and, and this guy, th this son that they're predicting will... Um, take over is worse than than um, Kim Jong Il. So it seems like we're we're heading into a a more tyrannical system, and I think that the um, the the, uh, the 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 fear is is that this sort of thing is going to last another sixty years. And uh, the governments of the world are trying, you know, South Korea and Japan and China and everything are trying to be modernized. I mean, the days of threatening each other and dropping bombs on each other is something that, you know, for the most part, um, everybody wants to sort of leave behind because capitalism is so much more fun, you know. Let's defeat the other guy through, um, you know, trade and, uh, um, you know, uh, investment and um, buyouts and all that kind of thing, and let's leave the guns and the bullets someplace else. And um, North Korea has a sort of old ment mentality towards this, and these other countries, uh, you know, are really getting kind of tired of it. And, and they try to work North Korea into a, a system where they say, listen, you guys, we'll give you oil, we'll give you food, um, just stop building a nuclear bomb, stop building rockets, stop threatening everybody, and, you know, we'll, we'll, um, we'll give you stuff. And this is, the, this is the crux of the problem, because, and this is what a lot of people don't understand, the the North Koreans have a philosophy that I talked about earlier, the J U C H E, where they believe in self reliance, self sufficiency. They want to do everything themselves. They do not want American oil. They do not want American food. They do not want our you know our money really. They would like to be able to do everything themselves. Uh, the problem is, is that they um, they can't because their system is corrupt and mismanaged, and they're not that big, and they don't have all the resources that they need. And the world has moved on to world trade and all this other stuff. But they feel that if um, the other countries, like the United States, would not interfere with what they're doing, that they would be able to do these things. They would be able to say, sell their rockets, sell their nuclear material, sell the things that they have of value, open up businesses and corporations and move, you know, product overseas and, and, and have a workforce and all this sort of stuff, which enabled them to be profit and purchase things and stuff. And so they, fee they feel that the United States, Japan... Uh, are um, uh, getting in the way of this. And so very often what happens is, is that even though their people are starving, uh, the United States will end up giving them food and, you know, or, you know, the United Nations will give them food and they'll take it for a while and then they'll be like, you know what, we don't want this. And they'll stop taking it. And you're, you'll think it to your head, you'll be like, well, if the food's free and it has no political uh, strings attached to it, why would you not take it? And, it? and it all comes down to this philosophy. They do not want to have any outside influence. So it, 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 it sort of rises and falls. The, the guy comes in and sees Kim Jong-il and he says, Hey, um, everybody's starving. Uh, we got to do something because, I mean, people are falling over dead in the streets. And uh, the United Nations says that they'll give us um, 50 million bags of grain or something. And Kim Jong-il will be like, fine, let's take the grain. So the United Nations will fly in the grain or bring it in by train or however they bring it in. probably comes through China. And then after a while, um, people are being fed and Kim Jong-il probably walks around and he's like, well, what's this bag right here with this um, made in the USA on it? Oh, well, that's the grain we got from the United Nations. 
oh, well, why don't we just stop that? Just stop bringing that in because we we're, that's not what that's not what our beliefs are about. We don't believe in that. Oh, okay, so we'll just stop it. Okay, and then they stop it, and then what happens? People start starving again. So it seems completely irrational, but that is the, that is the you know their belief system is is penned this way, and nobody has ever um, sat down and said, well, we should rearchitect it or re or change it around because you know didn't really work for Pol Pot. Um, Maybe it's not going to work here either. We don't want to go down in history as being, you know, um, a murder of millions. But um, no, they they continue to they continue to um, rule their country uh, very illogically. So what's going to happen? Well, uh, tensions are kind of rising right now because of the sinking of this cruiser, and um, I don't think uh, his, the North Koreans will react. I, I think historically they've basically are a bunch of bullies. And they threaten, and they gesture, and they say, if you guys do anything, we're totally going to beat your ass. And at this point, the South Koreans are saying, okay, we'll come and beat our ass, because if you do anything, we're going we're gonna to spank you down. And the thing is, is that the North Koreans won't do anything. Historically, they haven't. Um, they have done things worse than this uh, sinking in the past. In 1987, they sent two agents um, to board a um, North Cor- uh, South Korean plane in Baghdad. And uh, you don't usually hear about this story. This is actually true. And um, they uh, went on the on the plane. Um, it was um, a South Korean plane, and they put a bomb on it. And uh, they um, the bomb blew up and killed like I think it was like 117 people. And the um, the South Korean agents were um, I mean the North Korean agents were found, and uh, they both immediately took cyanide. And um, the man the the male died, but the female actually survived, and uh, she was taken to South Korea, put on trial, and she actually wrote a book, and she wrote a book about her training, and um, her, um, uh, uh, the mission, and everything uh, that's out there, her name's like Hyun Lee, or something like that, anyway, um, you can Wikipedia, um, the uh, uh, North Korean plane bombing, and or North Korean plane bomb, and you'll find it on like Wikipedia, I'll tell you more about it, um, and, uh, you know, that killed more people than this cruiser. And uh, there was no war brought then. Um, there was incidents uh, shortly after the war where um, North Koreans, like, killed people with axes on the border. Um, there's, there's border incidents all the time. People get up over the border, they end up shot or killed. Um, there are people come over the border, they end up killing themselves when they come over the border sometimes. Um, and then other times there are some uh, defections, usually from the military. Usually because the military people on their side have um, witnessed enough stuff on the south side to realize that, hey, you know, things aren't uh, uh, so great over here. I can go over to South Korea and things will be a little bit better. Um, unfortunately, though, a lot of the people that defect over to South Korea find that their life isn't exactly the most um, uh, rewarding thing that they thought it was going to be because um, they see how uh, capitalism is living. Um, but then when they come over with their no skills, no money, no um, assistance uh, situation, and they end up just working in a factory like they did in North Korea, making a, uh, a small wage and um, having a lot more responsibilities than they didn't have before, because in a communist system, you basically get paid no matter what you do, and, you know, here you, in, in, a, in a capitalist society, you can be fired, you can be reprimanded, you can be docked pay, and all sorts of other things, um, which uh, makes it very difficult for them to get along in the South. So um, I don't think that the um, uh, tensions will escalate enough that this will turn into a war. Because, again, I don't think anybody really wants there to be a war. But at the same time, I think everybody's getting kind of sick of all the bullshit from North Korea. Um, so I, I think it's going to be basically a situation where they're going to try to get North Korea to back down. And um, North Korea has done that before. They have sort of said, okay, well, let's go meet to the meeting table. And they all go to the meeting table. And then North Korea goes to the meeting table, signs some agreements waits a couple of months and then says, ah, we're not doing any of this, we're going to cancel all that, we're going to build a nuclear reactor, we're going to build a bomb again. I mean, it's, a, it's an endless cycle that goes on and on and on. So I, I don't really worry about it, but I do think the tensions are higher now than they've ever been, um, at least since um, that plane bombing in 1987. So, um, you know, certainly we'll keep an eye on it and uh, see how it progresses. Okay. So insurance GBS. So, um... When I moved into my um, new house, I had to get uh, homeowner's insurance, and I ended up getting uh, traveler's insurance because it was uh, fairly inexpensive. I have an insurance broker, 
Uh, an insurance broker is basically somebody who finds you insurance based on your needs and tends to find you the best price possible. I didn't usually believe in insurance brokers. I used to think that it would be better to go and um, get uh, my insurance on um, my own. Um, but it turns out that uh, a broker will save you a lot of money if you get a good one, which I, I think I have a good one. And um, anyway, uh, part of that was um, if I also wrap my car insurance in, I ended up saving like $200 a year. So I ended up uh, doing that, and my broker told me, well, listen, um, they have this thing where um, you can get a GPS installed in your car, and it um, tracks your driving habits, and it, um, it won't lower your rate, but it um, will prove that you drive a certain amount of miles every year, so that if it's less than, say, you know, 10,000 or whatever I said I drive per year, then I might be eligible for a lower rate. Um, but generally, you know, it's used to spy on me. But the thing is, is that I'm a safe driver and I don't really care. And I was actually interested in my own driving habits. And the way I figured it is that I could always um, get rid of this thing. And what they do is a guy comes out and he gives you, he puts this little thing in the, um, in the dash that you can barely see. It's in the corner. And um, it, it's just a GPS receiver and it plugs into the computer of the car. And it sends all this information probably through some sort of cell phone modem or something, um, to uh, whoever actually operates the service. I think it's IntelliDrive. And um, I have a login and a password, and I go to this website, and it actually tells me um, where I've been, uh, where the car's been, where the car's at right now. Uh, so if the car gets stolen, I can actually... And if the robber, or, you know, the burglar doesn't steal the freaking rips the GPS out uh, it'll tell me where the car is which is pretty cool um, or if you have family members and stuff like the kids are going to borrow the car or, dad I'm going to take the car out I'm going to go you know, to the grocery store or something okay and then you see that he's over somebody's house that you don't want him to be at you can actually spy on your kids so it's very helpful um, and it keeps a log and it also tells you how hard you braked um, uh, you know how it doesn't tell you like for instance like you might be thinking well it probably tells you that's just speed it actually doesn't tell you that it tells you if you've driven excessively and for how long. Like if it says, if you've driven over 75 miles an hour, which they call very fast, if you drive over 75 miles an hour, it tells you what percentage of your driving that was. Um, so that's all it tells you. Uh, it doesn't tell you that, you know, oh, you're breaking the law, we're calling the police, you know. Uh, it doesn't do anything like that. Um, it, but it does tell you how often you brake hard um, and, uh, you know... Uh, where you're, um, where, how often you're driving, like, different routes, what your average speed is, um, what your fuel savings is, and things like that. Fairly informative, pretty neat, pretty nifty. It was free with the traveler's car insurance, um, through my broker, so, um, it's, it's pretty cool. I, I think it would matter more, though, like I said, if you had a family and you loaned your car out to different family members, if you have that, that would be good for you. Um, Again, it can never be used, according to my agent, it can never be used to raise my rate. So um, it's something that uh, is more or less, um, they're using it these days to um, study driving habits. I'm sure that down the road, all the insurance agencies will get in cahoots and demand that everybody put these GPS units in their cars. Um, but, you know, it may be a situation where since I drive the speed limit all the time and I'm not really worried about getting busted for that, if I get into an accident, I can prove that I was driving the speed limit, um, that I was uh, in the right lane, you know, etc. And um, yeah, I could use that in court, you know, just like somebody could probably use it against me in case I was drinking and weaving all over the road, you know, that would be on there too. But since that doesn't happen with me, I'm not too worried about it. So, anyway, it's a fairly cool piece of technology. Um, and uh, your insurance company may offer it to you eventually. So, you know, you got to kind of ask the right questions, find out if your rates can rise if you use it. But my insurance agent said no, and so far my insurance rates have not risen. So, uh, fairly cool. So I recently, um, as you know, I recently purchased a house, and it came with a pool in the backyard. It's a 24-foot above-ground pool. And um, I wasn't really a pool guy. I didn't buy the house with the, with the intention of having the pool. I... Um, like the house and the pool came with it. It was that kind of a thing. And the pool is actually wrapped um, by a deck. And so I can't, you know, since the pool's not standalone, if the pool was standalone, I might have contemplated just getting rid of it. Um, because I'm, 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 I'm fair-skinned, 
and um, if I'm near the sun for any um, a short period of time, I just burn. I don't tend to tan. I'm not an albino or anything, but um, when I was born, um, uh, I was born early, and I had a um, basically okay. It's getting kind of long here, but basically. Um, my mom and my dad's blood types um, didn't match. And what happens in, in scenarios like that is when you, you're the firstborn, which is my brother, um, uh, there's uh, antibodies start to build up. And because they see this foreign uh, blood in the body, um, that, was, that was my brother. And, um, but they don't build up in sufficient enough strengths to do anything about the, uh, the firstborn child. But since I was the second-born child, the antibodies had built up enough and started to attack um, my body, you know, in, in the womb. And um, this caused me to have, um, I had to have blood transfusions in the womb. And um, I was born prematurely, and I had blood transfusions outside the womb. And I was actually born with red hair. I don't have red hair today, but I was born with red hair. And I had a lot of birth spots all over my body, which um, 99% of them are gone. I have one under my hair on the back of my head and that's the only one um but uh this has caused my skin to be very fair almost like a red-headed kid's skin um it doesn't really tan and so if i'm in the sun for any um you know length of time i burn so anyway i don't tend to like to go out on watercraft i don't tend to go out into pools um unless i'm like covered in um suntan lotion because otherwise I just turn crispy and you know it's funny when you're a kid ha, ha hey you're sunburned and stuff like that but you know um I went to see my dermatologist uh, about a year ago and she told me you know um I should wear a hat whenever I go for a walk because she's seeing an increase in people getting melanoma skin cancer on the top of their head and uh, you know that's the kind of that's the kind of skin I have. It's just one of those things where when your dermatologist tells you, you know, your doctor tells you, you know, you should wear a hat because you've got that kind of skin and you could die. That um, you start taking that shit a little bit more seriously. So anyway, I probably wouldn't have kept the pool, but because it was wrapped by the deck, I didn't want to like tear the pool out and then have this big hole in the middle of the deck. You know, I said, well, I put a trampoline in there. Um, but seriously, so I went ahead and um, I. Uh, looked at this thing and it hadn't been taken care of in a couple of years it was full of um grass and sticks and and garbage and uh it was all nasty inside so um I, I got a pump and i pumped the water out of the thing and that took a long time because i didn't buy the most wonderful pump in the world or anything and um eventually i got all the water out of it and then i you know cleaned up all the garbage that was in the pool and the liner had a hole in it and the liner was like it had lost all its color it was just white and with brown spots on it and stuff and looked like shit. So um, I called the um, my company out and I had them come out and they installed a new liner and it wasn't cheap, um, but it looked a lot better. I mean, it looked it looks 100% better with the new liner. And uh, the pool holds about 10,000 gallons of water, so I'm sure my water bill is going to be absolutely insane and um, basically blew the last of um, any money I had uh, getting this pool ready. Um, and one of the things about doing a pool is you got to get the chemicals right and um you 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 have a pump right you, so you, you i have a pool pump which you connect to the um the outlet of the pool the pool drains the water it goes into the pump and then it goes from the pump into this tall um r2d2 looking thing which is where the filter goes the water shoots through a, a big filter and it fills the pump and the pump is pressurized so you have to be kind of careful because you have to like make sure it's really screwed down um, tight and, and, and tightened up and stuff. Otherwise, you know, water will blast out of it like um, Mount St. Helens or something erupting and um, or whatever, you know, um, what's that thing they call Yellowstone old reliable or whatever. Um, yeah, anyway. So and then I have this thing called a, um, a, a brominator, which is a, um, a way of sort of chlorinating the pool. And the pool chemicals is really the um, uh, the real tricky part to this whole stupid thing because um, basically you have to get your pool chemistry right. And if you've ever been to a public pool, uh, which most people have, um, you've probably gone and smelled chlorine. And actually if you smell chlorine, uh, that actually means that the chemicals aren't right in the pool. 
Um, that's typically when you get in and your eyes start burning and your eyes are all red from being in the pool. That's because the chemicals aren't right in the pool. You're not supposed to come up with, uh, you're not supposed to be all red-eyed and, and uh, itchy and smell like chlorine. That actually means that the, 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 the balance isn't right. But what are you going to do when you got like, you know, 700 bodies in a public pool? You're never going to get that shit right. Um, but for a backyard pool, you can actually do it. And uh, there's, there's basically three things that you worry about. Um, you worry about how much um, free chlorine you have in your pool. Um, you worry about uh, the, um, the pH balance of the pool and the total um, alkalinity. And what I didn't know when I got into this, and you might, um, you might know this if you have a pool, but if you've never had a pool, you, you may not know this. There's actually two kinds of chlorine that people use on a pool. There's your standard chlorine, and then there's something called bromine or bromine. And um, I'm going to call it bromine because it's whatever. And uh, the bromine is um, a slightly more expensive chemical that is um, slightly less smelly when, it's, when it works. So some people choose bromide and some people choose chlorine. And it's just based on, you know, whatever. You can actually use bleach if you want. You can go out and get bleach, which is basically diluted chlorine, and pour bleach into your pool. And you can shock your pool that way. So, okay. So I have, a, I have, a, I have bromine because the, the guy that used to live here bought um, a whole bunch of these bromine tablets that go inside this, um, this brominator that I have. And um, so that's why I use bromine. But um, basically what you do, okay, is you got your pool, and the first thing you have to do is, sh what, what they say is you got to shock it. And the way you do that is you basically give it a heavy dose of chlorine. And they sell pool shock in these one-pound packs, and they cost about $4 each. So they tell you, um, for instance, on, on a 24-foot pool like I have, that you should use two packs of uh, shock a week. So $8 a week to shock the pool once a week in order to keep the chemicals, um, uh, you know, stable. However, since I have a brominator, I may not actually have to do that since I'm constantly running water through the brominator. But this is one of those things where, like, the information on it is completely, I don't know, it's all over the place. You know, so the pool companies all want you to buy as much chemicals as possible because that's how they make their money. And so they're not necessarily going to give you the, the best information. And then what you do is you basically um, look at... Um, you have these strips, and you can measure total chlorine or um, your um, your bromine, but um, or the, your bromine. But the um, but they're completely different. So you have to have the right strips to do each, which is really confusing for me because my pool shock is chlorine, but the but the filter's running it through bromine. So I'm not even sure which one I'm supposed to actually measure. That's another story. So anyway, you get these little strips, and you dip it in the water and stuff, and it's actually color-keyed, and it tells you um, how your, um, your your chlorine level is, and then how your your pH is. And your pH is basically your most important um, piece of the puzzle. Even Because if you're chlorinating, okay, so you're putting in chlorine, you're doing that right. Your pH is your balance between your acid and your base. If your pH is low, that means your pool has too much acid in it. Um, it may get acid from, like, say, rainwater. Uh, so the acid will eventually break down your liner and break down um, metal things in the pool and that sort of stuff. And if it's too high, then you end up with scaling because you've got too much base in the water. So you're... So you have to deal with a um, trying to balance your pH, and um, if your pH is balanced, your chlorine will actually work better. But if you're, you know, if it's not balanced, your chlorine won't work so well. Let's talk about a headache, man. My God, because it's like one of these things. Like you know, you look at it, you you dip the thing in, you look at the readings on the thing, and you go, I don't know what this means. I mean, I don't know if it's safe. Can I get in the pool if this is low, or am I going to get in there and just come out and I'm going to be purple? You know, you have no idea. And they tell you this stuff. They're like. Well, if this is low, you can add soda ash, and if this is high, you can add um, hydrochloric acid. <laughs> can you see yourself, like, pouring hydrochloric acid into the pool? How's that safe, you know? Come on in, kids! <laughs> Jump in the pool! Ah! You know, the kids just turn to instant bones and everything. Like, <sighs> um, I, I don't know. It's, it's very bizarre. But um, so far, my pool's been okay. But I... Um, I'm just like one of these things where I look at it and I, I think to myself, man, I am never going to like, I used to see people's backyard pools, you know, those above ground pools. And I literally just thought people put a hose in there 
and just sort of circled the water around and then once in a while like you know um dropped like some kind of like a like a like a alka-seltzer type tablet in it uh you know to sort of give it some chlorine and that's all you had to worry about i didn't know that there was this like weird sort of science involved in like balancing out the the metrics of the uh, of the chemical equation so um we're gonna see how it goes you know if i die because i get some kind of crazy um chlorine gas poisoning i'll let everybody know because i'll be dead Okay, that's it. That's all I got for the pool story. But I you know, wanted to share that with you because um, pools are expensive and they're not fun to maintain. And um, if you ever get to go over to somebody's house and they have a pool and you get to go in it, um, you should thank your pool, the, the pool owner because uh, thank God you don't have to deal with it because it's just, it just sucks. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about programming since I haven't done that in a little while. Um, and it's probably going to bore everybody, so you can just shut the show off at this point if you're done. Because um, if you're not into programming, there's nothing here for you. You can just shut it off because I'm not going to. There's no emails, and I'm going to wrap the show up after this conversation. We're going to get to the other topics in a future um, Oblast. Um, one of the problems I have where I work is that we uh, we are an international company. We we sell products overseas, and um, we have uh, it's software. And we have uh, some customers that are in um, uh, the Middle East. And they, um, they have a need um, to want to sell products in the, um, uh, the Saudi Arabian market. And Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is one of these countries where they really don't want anything in English. They don't like English. They don't want to use English. They want everything in Arabic. And uh, it's a problem for us because um, we use a uh, older um, programming language for our base application, um, which um, we know is outdated, but we haven't got the budget right now to afford a rewrite. And um, the uh, the application's written in um, Foxpro, and we have um, a kit. Uh, installed within it that allows us to change the language of the application to um, uh, say European languages for the most part Um, most of your European languages so if you speak German or French or Spanish uh, we can we can um, localize is what it's called we can localize the application to your language but it becomes a problem when you start to deal with, say, Arabic, um, because now you're writing um, instead of left to right, you're writing right to left, and the um, data types, um, which is the way the data is handled, is um, essentially double the size of a um, regular uh, data type. So. Um, Foxboro just uh, has a, a problem with that, and, and we have a problem with it in a number of different ways, um, data-related, essentially, but also, like, if you have an application, like, if you let's say you open up, um, let's just say you open up Firefox or, or Internet Explorer or Safari, and probably at the top of your screen you probably have a menu bar that says, like, you know, if you're on Windows, I mean, you probably have, like, File, Edit, View, History, Bookmarks, Tools, Help up there on the top of the screen and um, if you were to have all those in like those set positions on the screen and you decided well now I'm going to change those into Arabic the 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 words history and the word bookmarks for instance aren't going to be the same number of letters and so they're not going to take up the same amount of space and when you're dealing with a large line of business application like we have uh, changing all of the lettering means you also have to re-space all of the controls in the application. And there can be, in our application, which is a monster application, um, there can be thousands of different controls that you would actually have to go in and rearrange simply because the um, the sizes of just the words are different. And so you have to make sure that the application can handle uh, all of this new spacing. Or you have to try and build something that is so generic that it can handle um, you know, varying spacing. Uh, however you put it together. Um, localization is actually a, you know, um, a fairly uh, cumbersome process that uh, a lot of developers struggle with. Um, you know, a lot of times if you're building like a video game or something, you can kind of get away with it because you know, you, you're just displaying text um, 
you know, is sort of a written word and not using too many options uh, on the screen in, in terms of controls and, and static placement of labels. Where um, in a line of business app, it, it can be much more uh, difficult to um, uh, to do that. But the, also, there's also these uh, the, these data type problems. And in the older language, you know, you had these um, these things called code pages, uh, which uh, um, was basically sort of like an intelligent way of saying, you know, um, we're using this new font, and uh, you know, these codes map to these codes, so. Um, that's the new code page, and um, these are the you know this this is the information we're going to use in the page, and uh, that's changed now. Today we have um, Unicode, and Unicode is basically a, a more sophisticated way of doing. It. I don't want to bore you with with all of this, but um, we've basically you know looked at it and and figured that we would have to in order to use like in order to change our application to use um, Arabic, we would actually have to. Um, rewrite the entire application. And uh, we actually had, um, about three years ago, maybe a little bit longer, we um, uh, got together with a bunch of companies and we uh, decided that we would um, find a um, offshore or local um, company who would want to rewrite our application. And this application was written by three people over the course of uh, about, eh, say, a decade or so. And um, it's monstrous. It's monstrous beyond belief how big this thing is. Um, through the fact that the company doesn't really work like an IT company, anything a customer wants that we sell a product to, we basically put into the application um, with no thought or... Um, discussion about how it will affect the application in the long term, how it will be handled, how it will be maintained. And so the application has grown to ridiculous um, size. So we had a company come in and um, uh, look at the application. And basically we had a bid uh, somewhere between $1 million and $2 million to rewrite it. They would hire on a team of about um, a dozen people to work on it night and day in order to rewrite the application and um, we ended up uh, saying no because basically we can't afford it. Um, we operate in a, um, a narrow market with very low margins and um, we have competition which has similar products uh, of varying um, yet similar technology involved, all old, and they have the same margins that we do. And some of them are a little bit bigger, some of them are a little bit smaller, but there are competition. And we can't afford to spend uh, that kind of money because the margins are too small and we can't make that money back. So what we ended up doing is we ended up... Um, writing the application um, so that the data layer was uh, written in uh, Microsoft SQL Server and uh, we took the data layer out of FoxPro and the reason we did that was because FoxPro had a size, like a physical size limitation of the, um, the database table size of uh, two gigabytes and we had some customers that had so many records within their uh, application that the size was um, becoming a problem. So uh, we felt that we would at least uh, rewrite the application to, hand, to, to work within um, SQL Server rather than the native FoxPro tables. And by working within SQL Server, uh, we no longer have this two gigabyte um, limit in size. Uh, unfortunately, um, the end product is no real different from the um, the first product to the end customer to the end user that we sell the product to um, that already has our product when we say to them well you can upgrade if that customer isn't actually dealing with the two gigabyte limit which is 99 percent of our customers they're not having a problem then they'll say well why do i want to spend money to upgrade when the application um, 
is more expensive and arguably is slower than the native Fox Pro application. That's been a big problem for us, especially since we've spent a lot of money to rewrite it into SQL Server. And that's because we're in a very narrow marketplace. Um, and so the localization um, also falls along the same thing. We have a customer, um, a large customer, that we want to be, we want them to be happy with our product. And uh, they um, would really like to have a product uh, in Arabic. Um, but uh, we're unable to deliver that product to them because they don't want to pay for the, um, the rewrite and we don't want to pay for the rewrite because the margins that we'll get from the sale of the application um, would never equal out to the money that would have to be spent in order to rewrite the application. Um, it's a problem, though. It's a huge problem. We're aware that it's a huge problem, but we don't really have any sort of a solution um, to deal with it. We're, we're sort of um, a small outfit, and um, I don't know, you know, it's sort of a it's sort of a crazy situation what will happen um, down the road and uh, may become a day when this broadcaster says I'm out of work because uh, we're not able to um, keep the company afloat uh, because the margins have gotten too small and the competition too great in order to uh, uh, stay within the marketplace. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, I don't want to be one of those guys that's 55 without any skills. That's why I spend a lot of my time studying and um, uh, developing and uh, trying to stay as best I can up to date with things because I want to at least allow myself to be marketable uh, in the future. Um, and who knows, maybe one day I'll be able to do my dream and go work at a game company and uh, do something great and, and fun with my life rather than working on these line of business apps. Um, a boy can dream. But anyway, that's it for the show. Uh, I am going to um, try and get the gentleman from Australia to be on the show. If he doesn't contact me within the next week, and I will try to also work out having um, uh, the gentleman from Japan on the show, and uh, as well as the gentleman from the UK. Um, and if, uh, in the meantime, if none of that works out, I'm going to be trying to um, get the show done a little bit, a little bit more often, like I've been saying. Um, so I, I really appreciate you listening. I really hope uh, you find the show informative. If you want me to talk about more about a spe- specific topic, um, or anything that interests you, or you want to talk about a topic, or you would like to be a guest on the show. Um, just feel free to send me an email. Uh, write to kbaird, that's K-B-A-I-R-D, at vgn.us, and I'll read your email on the air, and or I'll get in touch with you um, off the air. Uh, so you've been listening to Kevin's Old Blast Radio. For more information, check out the VGN website at www.videogamenews.com. Send me an email for the show at kbaird at vgn.us. Peace. <laughs>